1: Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father.
0: Good evening, Tom.
1: Father, let's begin tonight with a quote from St. Teresa of Avila. She said, "...the devil knows that he has lost the, the soul that perseveringly practices mental prayer." So, Father, could you please comment on that quote? How important is having an interior life for our salvation? What's a good way to begin and persevere?
0: Well, in interior life is absolutely essential for our salvation. What it means is basically that uh, we are united to God by faith, hope, and charity. and uh, That's the foundation of the interior life. The, 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 the virtues of faith, hope, and charity are virtues that are in the intelligence and the will. The very powers that make us like God, which God has given us to make us like him in knowing truth, loving goodness, and in, in enjoying what is beautiful. So these virtues of faith, hope, and charity have to be there, but they are not identical with sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace uh, is in the soul when, when the soul um, is, is a child of God and is, is in, the, in, as we say, has the life of God dwelling in the soul. Now these virtues and the sanctifying grace are inseparable in the sense that um, uh, any soul that is in the state of God's grace and that actually has the divine life uh, engendered in the soul uh, has the, must have the virtues of faith and hope and charity. Cannot be otherwise. And if uh, faith or hope or charity charity is extinguished in the soul by mortal sin, then then the soul is plunged into mortal sin and loses that sanctifying grace, which is the share in the divine life. The same with hope and the same with faith. If someone rejects any of these three virtues, uh, which we call the theological virtues, there cannot be the divine life, of God in the soul, present in the soul, and sanctifying grace. Okay, uh, when we when we talk about the divine life of God in the soul, we're actually talking about the indwelling of God in the soul. Our Lord said, "If anyone, uh, he who dr- eats my blood and dr- eats my flesh and drinks my blood," we understand that now to mean the one who is in the state of sanctifying grace, God's grace, and receives the Holy Eucharist. Um, that our Lord actually dwells within them. The Father and I will come and dwell within him. These are the words of our Lord. And, of course, where the Father and the Son are, there the Holy Ghost must be too. So these three ideas go together. The virtues of faith, hope, and charity in the soul. The uh, presence of sanctifying grace the divine life in the soul. The abiding presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost in grace in the soul. All of these things are essential to what we call the interior life of the soul. When we're born, uh, when when we're conceived, our souls are created by God, united with our bodies such as they are at the time. And um, we do not have divine life in the soul, with the natural life that our parents have given us. But we do not have the divine life of God and sanctifying grace in the soul. That happens when we are baptized. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. As our Lord tells us, uh, the Holy Ghost enters the soul and he actually speaks to the soul. He actually teaches the soul to say a word, you might say. And what the Holy Ghost says, the, the word as it is in Sacred Scripture, because these words were addressed to those who spoke Aramaic, a dialect of Hebrew, that when the Holy Ghost enters the soul, he, he says the word Abba, Father. And so actually, he enables that soul to regard Almighty God the Father as not only his Creator, as God the Creator, but as Father, And the presence in the soul of of sanctifying grace by the power of the Holy Ghost sanctifying the soul enables the soul, that person then, to to see God, to know Him, to refer to Him, to pray to Him, to invoke Him as Father. And uh, that is the beginning of that divine life in the soul which we refer to as the interior life goes far beyond the mere mortal life given to us by our mortal parents. And um, that divine life in the soul is meant to grow. Um, as the physical life of the body, the intellectual life of the of the brain, the mind, is meant to grow, so the spiritual life is meant to grow too. We're meant to grow in virtues, we're meant to grow uh, above all in faith and hope and, and love for God, charity. Um, but unlike... Uh, the physical growth, which reaches a peak and then descends as we gradually uh, disintegrate and uh, get older and older, the body the body deteriorates, the brain with it, okay? And so the functions of the body, and of course that part of the body, and the brain, disintegrate. In its communication with this world, the soul is meant to grow continually in faith, hope, and charity, so that there is no hiatus there, no reversal, the only real reversal, comes through a sin, mortal sin and venial sin. Those are reversals, uh, when the soul loses, you know, uh, that life uh, in part or entirely by mortal sin. But that can be rekindled in the soul by repentance, and as you know. But how do we make that interior life grow? With grace, the, the life of the soul and grace and uh, faith upon charity. Well, this is basically the question here. And the, the answer is primarily through prayer to begin with. Uh, I would say prayer is a beginning, it's not, it's just, but it is, it is not everything. There is the sacraments, of course, that our Lord has given us. Uh, tremendously powerful boost to the interior life. But prayer is what you 're referring to here mental prayer what is it What does it mean? Well, there are vocal prayers we say we talk about saying our prayers, and when we talk about saying our prayers we 're using our mouth to pronounce the words that uh, initiate in our brains to um, speak words of faith and words of hope and words of love to god where making an act of uh, adoration, an act of contrition, an act of thanksgiving, an act of supplication to God, we're actually speaking aloud these things. Okay? But, obviously, uh, one can do that, speak these words without really meaning them. One could say them without thinking about them, but learn them by rote, repeat them. Uh, A child can learn a prayer, to pass a, a, a class in, in religion, let's say a, a catechism class, but the child has, although committing committed the uh, prayer to memory, it has not entered the child's mind or heart, not yet anyway, and uh, so the interior prayer is really supposed to be the, the, the place where the soul prays as in a sanctuary of its own, like the church where our Lord is himself present in the tabernacle of the soul by our faith and our hope and our charity, turn to him, and we make faith acts of faith, hope, and love to him, conscious, deliberate, loving acts directed toward him. Um, one can pray the entire rosary and all the prayers and be distracted the whole time because of the lack of the interior prayer. It's not there. There's something empty there. Um... So one is just basically parroting the sounds, okay? And uh, making the sound effects of prayer rather than really praying. But the interior prayer, well, um, that is true prayer. That is when the, the attention of the person, when his attention and his affection are brought together in the interior of the soul. And he is actually making acts of faith and hope of love for God. He's attentive to God's presence. He's placing himself in God's presence, or rather, you might say, he's making himself aware of the fact that he is in the presence of God, always. But now he's consciously, and deliberately so. He not only is aware that he's in the presence of God, but he makes an act to want to be in the presence of God. And... Um, he takes that that opportunity, as it were, then to express, well, first of all, his appreciation for God's love of him, and then he expresses his love his love for God too. Um, now that can take place without words. I mean, even even as we're sitting here right now, you and I, or anyone who might listen to this video at any future time, could actually simply turn his attention entirely inwardly and just completely close out the world around him we have that power we have the ability as human beings to focus our attention deliberately we can direct our attention we can direct our attention to the very presence of god now god is present always and everywhere And we're just not aware of it. So we realize when we're focusing our attention, it doesn't mean we are making God present. We're just making ourselves aware of the presence that is always there. Right? And we're aware of ourselves in the mind of God. We're aware of ourselves in the mind, in in the, uh, the will of God as he wills us to be, that we are completely not only engulfed in that divine presence, that divine intelligence knowing us, and that divine will loving us and willing us to be. But we realize that every single thing in us, everything, is known to, perfectly known to, and willed by God at this very moment. That He sustains the existence of every molecule, every atom, every electron, everything. As our Lord said, even the hairs on your head are numbered. God knows them individually. That's how powerful the divine mind is. He accounts for absolutely everything that is. And uh, to be, make ourselves aware of that for a second, and to be that completely aware of the presence of God a- in us and our presence within him, you might say, then when it moves to an act of love and adoration to him, and we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, and how he is the foundation of all existence, our own, and he knows us perfectly. That the divine light penetrates absolutely everything and knows us absolute with absolute clarity. He comprehends us for everything we are and aren't. He um we, we can make an act of love for him, which is a very uh powerful act of love, powerful in terms of our ability to love. But we want to be aware of how powerful God's love is for us, too. We want to be appreciative of God's love for us. And the only way to do that is to be aware of it. And the only way to be aware of it is to enter into this mental prayer where we turn our attention entirely to God and not only his divine presence within us and around us, but even more so, our presence within him and his mind and his 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 knowledge and his will of us, and how comprehensive that is we It's as how we put ourselves out of this universe into that divine the divine mind. we see ourselves. As that as present in the divine mind and present to the divine love in this wonderful, wonderful way, forget everything else and uh, that um, that contact I mean I, I guess I would consider that to be as close as we can get in the world today, that uh, mental prayer. To making eye contact with God, in a sense, you know, being soul to soul, soul to mind, soul to God's awareness, God's thought, God's mind, the divine mind, as I say, none of these words, when it comes to God, are adequate. I know that, you know, we all know that. Um, but um, it's a step. It's a start, anyway. So that that mental prayer. Uh, now, what what I'm what I'm saying here. You know, mental prayer goes beyond this in the sense that there's meditation of mental prayer. It doesn't stop with this acknowledgement. It starts with that. um, That awareness of the divine knowledge and love for us. And and, and that, that is our unique focus and everything else just fades away. And so we place ourselves in the presence of God in that way. And uh, then we can begin the mental prayer uh, that God wants to guide us. We're asking our Lord himself, we're asking the Holy Ghost, um, whom our Lord has sent to us, we're asking him to guide our minds in understanding something of our faith. Now theology, as you know, is the fides querens intellectum, the faith seeking understanding. And that's as far as the rational mind goes, but prayer, you might say, is also a matter of the mind seeking understanding, but not limited to the understanding of the human intelligence and human intellect. We're asking God, by prayer, to lead us to understand more than could be understood by by mere theology, by mere rational reflection on the truths of faith. We're asking God to reveal us and to reveal to us more and more of Himself, and uh, this is where mystical contemplation begins to come in. Um, all of this has to do with the three ages of the interior life, which you're familiar with. The first part of the interior life, the purgative way, is is the effort to begin this mental prayer and to to begin uh to uh, to live the mental prayer i mean not just to have it as a an effort that we're trying to learn how to play the violin or whatever learning how to tie our shoes but that we be, as we go through the way the purgative way we become more and more accustomed to praying with mental prayer with our attention with our affection actively engaged in, in that And uh, this is one of the things that leads us to the threshold, then, of the the illuminative way, where we've been persevering in their mental prayer and asking God to reveal himself more and more to us as an act of love. We're asking God, as someone who loves God, that he would allow us to know him more and more perfectly. And for someone who wants to know him more and more perfectly because of a love for God, then God certainly is very pleased with that prayer because that's what God wants. To. And he will answer that by then um, leading that soul on to a deeper and deeper understanding of his faith and a greater appreciation for who God is. And actually, the soul will learn a greater appreciation for who, who each. The one who prays will learn a greater appreciation for who he is. Because he can only know, any one of us can only know who we really are in light of who God is, because we are his creatures created in his image and likeness. To know who we are, we have to know. To really understand who we are, we have to know him. We have to know who he is. So really, the saints in heaven are the only ones who really know who they are, honestly and truly, because they see God in his image and likeness they were created. And, um... I'm not just debating whether or not to go into a rather, you know, I'm not an expert on the three ages of the interior life by any means, <coughs> but there's so much that can be said. I mean, we could fill up all the program on that very subject. But uh, it's advisable to say that the the um, method of interior prayer—not just saying your prayers aloud, but always having, even with the with a spoken prayer, the 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 consciousness, the awareness, the attention the devotion, the love and affection for God which is expressed in the vocal prayer. That is essential. For it to really, really be prayer. But that you can pray that way without words, too. And when you go into the uh, a time of like a mystical contemplation in the second, the illuminative way, actually much of the prayer will be without words. It doesn't take away from the vocal prayer. It doesn't take from the rosary or other prayers. But uh, but it simply makes them fruitful. This is where they're actually leading. If we're praying them fruitfully, this is where they will take us to a deeper and deeper interior life of mental prayer. The question, how important is it? It's absolutely essential. No one will ever see God without the interior life of grace, with faith, hope, and charity, and if one has that charity, he will want to know his beloved more and more. That will draw him onward in prayer, necessarily.
1: Father, you you mentioned the sacred scripture where Christ said that he and the Father would come to dwell within the soul uh, that's in the state of sanctifying grace, and I think that's an important idea to remember, Mm -hmm. because it seems that uh, a common mistake can be uh, that we pray to God somewhere out there in the heavens millions of miles away mm-hmm. trying to find him when in reality the soul that's in the state of sanctifying grace, Christ, the blessed trinity is actually has a living presence within that mm-hmm. soul. So rather than uh, sending our prayers millions of miles away into the heavens, yeah. hoping that they find God out there, yeah. we should, uh, in fact, during this, this mental prayer, turn inward into our human soul right, and find right. God in Some there.
0: people do think of praying as like tying a message on a rock and throwing it up into the sky hoping God catches it. But, you know, obviously it doesn't work too well. <laughs> those people who do that are going to get hit in the head by some falling rocks. But, um, uh, but you're right. You know, our Lord said, uh, that the kingdom of heaven is within you. And what, what our Lord is saying is by, by sanctifying grace. I mean, our Lord created your soul to be a sanctuary on earth for Him, which is reflected in the sanctuary of the of the uh, of the tabernacle and the sanctuary of the traditional Catholic Church. You know. Those are reflections of what our Lord wants. He comes from the tabernacle on the altar of the church to you in Holy Communion, precisely because He wants to make His abode with you. He wants you to be a living tabernacle of his, that's really uh, and so the the tabernacle and the altar is a means to accomplish that end. but the end, the purpose is that he be united with you here on earth by faith and hope and charity Um, so as you say, I mean people have to realize that it is the divine presence within that is the essential, sanctifying grace as we know and if you read the testimony of the early martyrs, time and time again, you see they make this point before their judges, before the magistrates of Rome, the governors and the procurators and all. Else. When they're put on trial, what do they say? The early martyrs were very, very open, and very bold about this uh, that they have God within them. They, they bear God within them by grace. God is present within them by grace. Uh, they were all, in a sense, Christ bearers or Christophers. Right, insofar as they they had, they believed with absolute uh, certitude of faith. Well, I mean, insofar as they were in the state of grace, and I guess none of them would, you know, claim to have <clears throat> uh, you know infallible knowledge and that they are definitely in the state of God's grace. But the point is that that is what Christ came for—to be present in their souls. And um, even Saint Paul says even though my conscience doesn't reprove me of anything, that doesn't make me guiltless. So, you know, nobody would go around saying, hey, I know I'm in the state of grace. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Uh, Christ is the judge, and only he. To so this idea of going, making the altar call, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you know, means you're saved. Uh, and, uh, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. You're saved, and you know you're saved. That's nonsense. That has nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. Uh, Christ is the judge, not you, not I and uh, he is the judge of you and me, not you and not I but in any case, the point being that the early martyrs were so motivated by this understanding of the presence of God within them that they saw the tortures that they would endure uh, endure as martyrs were nothing to them there were no, no terrors for them And as uh, some of them actually would say, well, Christ is within me, and he will endure this for me. He will take this upon himself. And so they were very courageous. And uh, it was exactly true. I mean, he did. So um, one one of the names that comes to mind of the early martyrs is one of the earliest martyrs, said Ignatius of Antioch. Who made no? He was very, very bold in expressing the fact that there was a divine presence within his soul. When he was condemned to die, he was more than willing to go.
1: And uh, another, yeah. another of those martyrs, Father, I believe, was Saint Perpetua. Who? Yeah. Um,
0: sure.
1: I believe at the time she might have, she might have, have been pregnant, or, or yeah. actually, actually gave she birth. She
0: was a child in, in the prison.
1: And and I believe one of her, one of her, her guards uh, yeah. asked her that that about this, this daunting, <coughs> pain that she was going to endure of childbirth and how she was so concerned about that and how if she could barely endure that how is she going to endure all of the terrible torments of of her martyrdom and she essentially said well the childbirth it is me personally Mm -hmm. suffering but christ within me he will endure the sufferings Mm -hmm. with me that's exactly right so so. but father let's let's move on we've We've, we've received quite a number of questions considering the, the, uh, the consecration of the individual to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Mm-hmm. It seems there's still a lot of confusion on this matter, and we, we, like I said, we've received a number of emails concerning that, but I thought this one in particular lays out the case pretty well, so I'll just read it here, Father. And they say that, "...I am one of those folk who are striving to consecrate themselves to the Blessed Virgin in accordance with her clearly expressed wishes." I have made the consecration prayer many times and always renew it on Our Lady's feast days. But there is substantial distinction between reciting formulae and living out their spirit and import. Frankly, I don't know what I'm doing. Would Father be kind enough to explain in categorically practical terms and examples what a life of consecration looks like, both for married and for unmarried? What is consecration to Mary, and what are the signs that such a consecration is genuine and operative in one's life and soul?
0: Uh, very good question. And I'm sure there are many, as you say, who have that very question in their mind. Um, what did what did Lucia say? What did Lucia say when it came down to a matter of prayer and penance? Well, prayer, she said, rosary, right? Real devotion, and uh, meditating upon the mysteries of our Lord's suffering and death, she specifically mentioned during for the Friday first Saturdays. But penance, she said, was a matter of not doing great austerities. Penance was a matter of simply accepting uh, the duties and the crosses of daily life and accepting them gracefully and lovingly. So if one wanted to to determine uh, what a life like that uh, looks like, one would go to the autobiography of St. Teresa of the Child Jesus, read that, her little way, that's exactly her little way from beginning to end, um, she is not known for great austerities. she's not known for seeking out you know massive fasts and uh terrible uh hardships uh self inflicting pain and so on um, She is known simply for wholeheartedly accepting the crosses of every day and doing her best out of love for our Lord and taking with equal uh, what we call equanimity, right? The things that she found pleasant and the things she found unpleasant. To deal with St. Teresa, the child Jesus, day by day, you you might never have suspected that she had a horror of spiders. And when she was uh, ordered to clean out the closets and so on of the dark, dank places of the convent, um, she dreaded this. But, you know, if you had her uh, as you know, uh, your companion in, in, in these tasks, you would not even detect this necessarily, because she would simply uh, take all of that and offer it to our Lord, and uh, simply go about her business with great um, um, selfless abandon, as it were. Uh, there are so many instances from her life. Reading the autobiography, not like writings about her, but the her autobiography is more telling. And she wrote it because she was ordered to do so, um, and she did. In, in in fulfilling that order, she she again she found it rather repulsive, uh, probably as repulsive as f- cleaning the spiders out of the closets, really. But because she was ordered to do so by her legitimate superior, she did. The job that she knew her superior wanted her to do and she was very candid and um, you don't get you don't get any uh, trace of the fact that she found it difficult or irksome or abhorrent to do it but she was doing it out of obedience only out of obedience she wouldn't have done it otherwise Um, and see she talks about being assigned to uh, take care of an old nun uh, wheelchair bound nun who was really cantankerous and just really nasty. You know, you get the impression. Now, she didn't tell us that the nun was nasty, but you tell us the nun had the reputation for that, and uh, some of the the young sisters who were assigned the job didn't last. And um, we read about uh, St. Teresa taking care of this elderly cantankerous uh, downright mean sister who evidently had not gained a great deal from the, from the uh, convent life up to that time and uh, The nun even asked st. Teresa. I don't know if we read this as yet, in her words are the words of someone writing about it but um, the nun even asked her finally, Why are you so patient with me? I mean, no one else is as patient with me. I, mean, I drive everyone else, she didn't say this, I mean, the message is I drive everyone else you know, to distraction and they can't take it anymore. And they wind up in tears. And St. Therese just explained to her, in very briefly, her outlook on things and um, how she saw the sister uh, and uh, how our Lord had asked her to do this for him and she was very willing to do this for him. And uh, knowing she was doing it for him, she would do it in a certain way without complaining and all the rest. And the sister, who had been in the religious life so many more years, I mean, manifold times, the length the uh, years sister, um, Sister Teresa, the child Jesus and the Holy Face, you know, had been in the convent, uh, it really affected the elderly nun. And so uh, the story is that the... Testimony, you might say, of this young religious St. Therese uh, actually t- helped this older sister in her own struggles and in her own uh, interior life. But to get back to, to the point, what does it look like? Well, it looks like that. And, uh, Lucia made the point very clear. It's not a matter of accepting great austerities. When people hear about the penances that are due, Uh, They get scared away because they realize well, I can't do these great austerities. So why should I even try? She said no 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 no. This is not what God wants Great austerities from you She doesn't say it, but I'm sure there are great austerities that our people are offering to our Lord, but for those of us Ordinary souls you might say who want to consecrate it to our lady ourselves to our lady What she's asking us to do what God is asking us to do is to be patient in dealing with the crosses of daily life, and to fulfill our duties. Husbands, be the best husbands you can be. Wives, be the best wives you can be. Fathers and mothers, be the best parents you can be. Children, be the best sons and daughters you can be. I mean, anyone can do that. They can strive for it. Everybody will fall short, but the fact is that's what their intention is. It's what they want to achieve. That's what they're trying to do by the grace of God. That's all, that's all that the message of Fatima is asking us. Um, basically to do what our Lord prophesied in the Gospel. <clears throat> he says, when you have a, a, a servant who does everything he's supposed to do, the servant should just say to himself, well, I'm not a great servant because all I'm doing is what I'm supposed to do. I'm just carrying out my duties. That's my baseline. I don't go way beyond the call of duty and doing some spectacular thing because all of my time and energy is doing as well as I can, the responsibilities I have been given, and I'm carrying those out. And there you are. It's as simple as that. It's hard. Sometimes the simple things are harder, you know, uh, because they don't have a lot of fine print to get around things. But it is as simple as that. Uh, It would be simply um, doing the best you can um, in your home life as the father And the husband, as the wife, the mother, the children, teaching your children to do the same. Do it all out of love for God. And when you go to work, um, doing the same thing there. Giving your employer what is just and right. Setting an example of virtues. Um, And uh, and you'll be fulfilling what is required of those who want to consecrate themselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary.
1: And Father, I think that idea is, is expressed very, very beautifully in the the Trustful Surrender book,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: they they speak of how many souls think that uh, that great sanctity lies in in serious austerities or all these great manifold prayers and all these things. But they quote St. Francis de Sales, where he said, "The greatest." perfection is simply just loving God mm-hmm. and everything else is just the details everything else will follow from that mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. think that is perfect perfectly coincides with some with our it, it
0: certainly does right I'm exactly right. right and who would know that better than our blessed mother because right? yeah. that was exactly her whole existence right yeah
1: perfect. well father I think that's a great note to end on right there so thank you for being oh, here tonight well. I
0: appreciate it we're being uncharacteristically brief at least you are <laughs> I'm not <laughs> tell that that's fine thank you case. God bless you very good questions and I appreciate the questions we do receive. We pray for those who do send questions in, and even if you do not have your questions answered right away, at least you know you're being prayed for for asking them.
1: Definitely, that's true. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.